Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben Escrow. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate you inviting me and look forward to being moderately nerdy. Moderate. I'm going to try to moderately. keep it. Yeah. Oh, we can get we can get real nerdy. We can get we can get weird here. It's all right. It's just all right. The, yeah, we can go deep. I'm going to let that. Yeah, but that's good with me. So before we get weird, before we get nerdy, uh, why don't you go ahead and give the listeners your background, you know, what you've done in your professional history and what you're doing now. So I, it's tough to see where to start. I got involved in the fitness space from wanting to change, change my body. It was like the, if anybody remembers Spike Club, like I was, I was, uh, motivated by the Brad Pitt body and fight club. I wanted to get lean and I started dieting. I got leaner and then I realized, oh man, I have no muscle. So I need to gain muscle. And then that started the now 20 year project of, of figuring out physiology. And through that, I, I really got hooked onto the, the idea of supplements because the marketing was a letdown right from the get-go for me. I think uh, I wanted to, just like everybody, I wanted to believe it, buy into it. And after the first two disappointments, I felt like an idiot and said, okay, this is all a lie and I need to understand it better. So I'm not uh, easy prey uh, to this. So that started the, the journey that kind of ha has run in parallel for those 20 years of, of education uh, on physiology. So I went to school, I went to um, undergrad for nutrition and ended up going for a master's in sports nutrition after that. And I did my RD during that time, uh, registered dietitian. And then after that, I started my first company called Denova Nutrition and moved to Florida for a bit. We scaled up a bit and then realized that after I made what I considered one of our most successful formulations products called Utopia, that I, I didn't feel like I... I felt like my ceiling was eventually going to be my, my lack of understanding of chemistry because chemistry is not a, a big component of nutrition, you know, nutrition curriculum. So, you know, physiology is, is, is applied biochemistry and formulation is basically pharmaceutical chemistry mm -hmm. as is drug development. So I went back for another master's in pharmaceutical chemistry. This is now about three, I think three years ago. And that, that helped. I, I think before I kind of made formulations from what I'd call the top down to now it's more bottom up is I, I'm looking for mechanisms. I'm looking for theoretical, and then I want to kind of build practical onto that. And yeah, that's, that's kind of, that gets us up to date now. Yeah. And, and throughout this whole time, I mean, you've been pretty involved in the powerlifting world, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, a lot of that has run in tandem. You know, I started as a bodybuilder in my early twenties and didn't really like that. I was judged subjectively. And I liked the idea of being judged objectively on how much I could lift. So hmm. at that point in time, there was a pretty big wave of bodybuilders getting into the powerlifting space. And I was one of those people. And then I found that I just liked, you know, th there's, there's themes throughout this story that you're going to continue to find is that I like creative problem solving. And hmm. I think when I switched over to powerlifting, I realized that to be a better powerlifter, you really have to understand programming at a very fundamental level. That's not necessarily true. That can make you a better bodybuilder, 
but I think it's arguably more important for a powerlifter. And then what's funny is like, ironically, when I understood programming better and got, became a better powerlifter, I also became a better bodybuilder. So it's like, I got the answers to both questions by almost getting out of the purest bodybuilding space. Yeah, I think, I feel like there's a lot more room for error, so to speak, with bodybuilding. Whereas since powerlifting is such a neural, neurally driven sport, like you're dealing with basically the neuromuscular system's ability to produce force, which it's probably a little harder, you know, muscle growth. It's, 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 you know, you're going through for different things there. And I think not that powerlifters haven't done kind of some ridiculous things, but bodybuilders have done ridiculous things for a really long time. And, and they still got like really jacked and big and yeah, so. I, I'm with you there that the powerlifting is probably a little bit more of a puzzle to put together to like, once you get elite, like to get somebody decently strong is probably not all that difficult, but to get to like elite level strength, I mean, you got to really be dialed and, and in. Going. Yes. I think that's always the biggest challenge. And I think, you know, the other end of it that really attracted me is, or maybe the letdown of the bodybuilding end is particularly in drug-free bodybuilding it's very hard to determine what's working because growth is such a slow process. So it's so hard to measure like, did this work? Did that work? Did this work? Unless you're patient enough to wait a year or or so, you know, after, after the gains have kicked in because you can mistakenly stumble your way into gains in the beginning. And I think, uh, because strength is something that typically you will see and you can measure on a much shorter timeline, it actually makes it a more clean equation. And it makes it a little, I don't know if I'd say predictable, but you can sort of measure dose response a little bit better. Yeah. Whereas the sure. only thing to really measure hypertrophy well with those responses, like taking exogenous hormones, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then growth, you know, right. A lot right. Yeah. But then even if success is still subjective though, you know, you can, right. You can and experience. We, yeah. We've certainly seen that drive people to literally the grave. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's funny. Cause once we get into a lot of these conversation points, I think those worlds are going to potentially become part of, of the conversation in, in, in this topic too, because yeah, yeah it, obviously, you know, muscle gain and fat loss are, are the core of fitness, right? Right. And that's a, it's a, the outcomes that a lot of people are trying to achieve, you know, one or the other or both simultaneously. A- yep. Absolutely. So yeah, we today we are going to talk about specific ingredients that are intended or, or are theorized to promote fat loss. Before I get there, I'm just curious. What were the two supplements you tried that you were disappointed by in the beginning? You mentioned a couple supplements. At that time, I'm trying to think of what was the big thing. I remember, Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember creatine was huge and and I was, I I think the marketing made me expect something that was never going to be realistic from creatine. So I would, yep. now the irony in that is like, that's the most evidence-based supplement we pretty much have. And that was a letdown. But I think along that period of time, there was like HMB was a big mm. marketing thing. Funny enough, now that we have terkesterone, ectisterone was a pretty fairly big thing, which has come and gone in waves. Sure. Obviously, a lot of the muscle tech products like the nitro tech and cell tech promising you to gain yep. you know, 12 pounds of lean body mass in the first week. I yeah, think- it were, the, the, the industry existed a little differently during that time. Arginine and glutamine were rampant yeah. and everywhere. Everybody thought you had to be taking them all the time. But I think there was this redundant process of that too, is like, even as I became more, quote, evidence-based, 
there was more letdowns. There were just, there were more sophisticated letdowns, like, like <laughs> branch chains. Like everybody was taking mm. branch chains between meals because of, you know, Lane's data. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that data, but, but, you know, the bottom line is like, was it worth $60 a month in BCAAs? Right. No. So I think it, it's, it's given me a unique perspective now that, that I always enjoy being able to come back and, and discuss, I think, or, or try to have the ideal of doing it from a consumer perspective, because I think, I think it's important to understand what's really driving all of these things, really like the laws of, of body composition versus yeah. these, these tip of the iceberg things that maybe are a, a percentage or a fraction of a percentage of an influence versus, you know, the things that are like overwhelmingly 90% or more of, of what's making, making everything happen, which is like losing fat, gaining muscle, all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So your mention of, of muscle tech, I'm actually going to co-promote a, another podcast that I've, I'm a fan of. I, I'm not, not shy to promote it at all, but Iron Culture. You were just on Iron Culture podcast mm-hmm. recently and you t- talking about parazanthine. So yeah. that's probably not going to get into parazanthine today. That's a, that's a different topic, but you know, I would highly recommend you go to, go to that podcast and listen to Ben talk about parazanthine on there because that's a really good discussion on you know a newer product or newer ingredient you're going to see and you know ben talked about the formulation side of things which we just won't have time to get into today yeah. he also dives into more of the formula formulation side which is super interesting because as i was listening to you in that episode i'm like man and there's another one episode you were on a while back of like i think J- jps education or something like that on, it was on youtube yeah. Yeah. And like, if you're, what I think you meant by like top down is you're kind of looking at the, the trials that are getting to the point where they're in human humans and they're trying to see if there's an actual performance or some kind of outcome, whether that be muscle gain versus even simpler than that. that. So when I, when I said top down, I think I meant like purely anecdote experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like like yeah. seeing the marketing of a product and then just buying individual ingredients and testing them out and, and separating gotcha. basically as, as Mike share calls it, separating the noise from, from the signal. And that's how I think my, my, my original formulations, how I stumbled into success, I'll call it is <laughs> I just used a lot of individual ingredients and saw, okay, yeah. like this, feels this way, this feels this way. If I combine those, is there synergy? Okay. Like, you know, it wasn't as sophisticated as like, okay, now I understand the mechanism. Now I understand that this pathway complements that one and these will work together on paper. They should work together. And then, so that's the difference is the, the bottom up is I understand the pathways in theory, these should work. Let me try it and then validate that. And it, it does yeah. make for a little bit cleaner of a process and a quicker process to uh, go bottom up because you can kind of save time and you learn. Yeah. Right. And from a formulator stand perspective, I, I feel like if you aren't doing it that way, or even if, even if I guess if you're someone who just wants to know what's coming or what might come or what might be down the road, yeah. you're going to be behind. Like if you're just kind of waiting for even just the randomized controlled trials in humans and you're just like basing recommendations or basing like your knowledge on that, you're just going to be a little behind the, behind the eight ball, so to speak, especially if you're a formulator. So 
that's the, I think that's the biggest component is if you want to innovate, you have to understand. It helps a lot to understand mechanisms because that's really where you have, let's, let's say creative space for finding something that potentially somebody else hasn't had. And I mean, that's, that's what doing research is. Like when you go for a PhD, you need to contribute something novel to the knowledge of the space. And I'm not saying formulating is doing a PhD, but I'm saying, you know, I guess philosophically you're, you're trying to do something similar in the space and that's how you get reward in the space is you get customers by being innovative and doing something different than everybody else because you stand out in a good way. But that's getting harder and harder because obviously, you know, regulation gets tighter. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it does make it harder to innovate. And I think that's why, by and large, what you see in the space now is exactly what you alluded to, which is kind of one person innovates and then the rest of the industry does mental gymnastics around that, that core formulation to make it seem like it's new and different and then just markets harder and like squeezes out that, that smaller player. And that's part that, right. that sucked because I, I, I mentioned every time I talk about formulation, but, and you mentioned the podcast, I think anybody who is interested in listening to me and, and my meanderings about this should be interested in someone like Patrick Arnold as well, because Patrick was my, he really was my kind of role model or, or uh, motivation in the space because he was an innovator before everybody else at that period of time when I was first getting into the industry and he was a chemist. So I think that's a big thing that led me to go further down the path of chasing chemistry. And he was making structural manipulations on DHEA because programmones were still legal. And there was, there was so mm. much potential to give people what they wanted. So the marketing was not far separated from the reality. And if you knew chemistry sure. and you could do these selective reactions on DHEA to produce something that's orally active and behaves as an anabolic, you hit a loophole. That makes it a legal, essentially a legal steroid um, that's orally active. And that, therefore, it's a mm. supplement because if it's orally ingested uh, and DHEA was grandfathered in, it, it, there was nothing to exist to regulate that yet. Now that has changed. But, right. you know, people could debate on the ethics of that, but it was brilliant. And, and brilliant people yeah. were... were making very creative and interesting manipulations based upon old data or old pharmaceuticals. And, and Patrick brought two major things that still to this day, whether people know it or not, have been heavily influential. He brought one 3-dimethamylamine to the space at, on the stimulant side, um, which was in Jack, Jack 3D. And mm-hmm. so he, he had a product two years before that, that, that really introduced it to the market. And then he brought one AD to the market, which was one, like, I think one and androstenedione, I think it was. And that was a very popular program. And so sure. it was somebody doing, doing innovation. And, and that's why I think it really inspired yeah. me. Yeah. Well, I, I think you've made it very clear why I chose, or I wanted to talk to you about yeah. this specific ingredient slash type of product, because it is one of those that there is, it's like, it's like the unicorn that innovation is always trying to chase, yeah. right? It's like, okay, like we, we got to crack this code of, of how to like really ramp up body fat loss. And we've got to find the next, find an ingredient or something that can tap into this. And it's just always being chased. It's always, it's always being chased. And there's some things that have, 
have classically been tied to it and I think will forever be tied to it. But then there's, there's, yeah, like new things are always is coming out. As you mentioned, you kind of touched on like how people can modify things or, or things like that. And so I thought, yeah, you'd be a great person to talk about ingredients for fat loss. And before we talk about any specific ingredients, I think it'd be good to preface the conversation by just talking about the process of fat loss itself. Like what is, what are the steps required? And that, and and this is beyond just like calorie deficit, right? Hopefully like this is where Ben can get a little weird if he wants to. What are the steps and things that need to happen? Because I think that really informs you know, what are these ingredients trying to target? And then if they are efficacious at the end of the day. Sure. So I am going to bring, I'm going to try to put an appropriate level of biochemistry into this and and physiology and everything. And if you want to elaborate on any one area, we can certainly do that, but I don't want to lose anybody by getting too deep into those things. I love them and I find them very interesting, but I, I also realize that I don't want to derail, you know, the conversation by getting into, you know, too much, too much fizz or too much uh, biochem. So basically, like you said, you first need to understand how fat is, how fat is made, how fat is stored in the body. And then from there, we can discuss how it's broken down and how that process is regulated and where there might be places to exploit that either uh, nutraceutically or pharmaceutically. And I think that's, that'll be the, the bulk of the conversation. So to really start at, at, at step one, you need to understand that basically when you eat any food, you're breaking it down. So let's start with uh, bullet point one, which would be the macronutrients. So protein, carbohydrates, and fat, the things that provide energy to you when you consume them. You know, when you eat them, you chew them, you uh, digest, you absorb them. You're basically breaking those down into smaller, simpler parts of, of those components. And those go through metabolic processes to produce really what's a central key compound in, in bioenergetics or in, in metabolism. It's called acetylcoenzyme A. So basically, when you break down any of those three to their, to their smallest level to create energy, it starts with acetylcoenzyme A. Now, we could, you could make a slight argument that getting with carbohydrates, there's exceptions because you can do glycolysis. But when you create acetylcoenzyme A, there's options and your, your body is an amazing regulator. And I think the deeper I've gotten into understanding physiology, the more humbling it is for sure. how to understand kind of the, the flux of what's going on. So basically at any given time, and, and that's what people have probably heard, you know, in order to lose body fat, you need to have, you need to burn more than you ingest, or you need to have a caloric deficit. Now, the reason for that is your body at all times since this is something going on 24 hours a day, it has to be able to know the ratio of, of acetylcoenzyme A that's available within cells. Mm-hmm. And if, if that's low, the choice will be to further break down acetylcoenzyme A to make ATP, to make cellular energy. Now, if that's high, if you have a lot of acetylcoenzyme A available, certain hormones will, will influence this, you know, a, a lot of things. But basically what happens in your body is it's a signal to your body that, okay, we can store this away. And that storage of acetylcoenzyme A goes through this multi-step process. Again, it's, it's involved, but the short answer is that gets turned into fat. So really any of those brief macronutrients from foods you eat can be turned into fat. And largely if you're eating too much of them or you're, you're 
you're not being active enough, then they can be created into body fat. So it, I think that answers the first part of the question, which is the, really the start of, I want to take a fat burner. I want to lose body fat. How did I get here? That's how you got there. Right. You, you, yep. ate, you just consumed too much more than, than, than you burned. And your body realized that we don't need to put this through these pathways to make ATP. That would be wasteful. Let's store it for a later time when we might need it. So exactly to get to the next point in the, and I think the main one that, that will branch off of a lot of it is, is how, how do we break down fat? What, um, what are the main processes involved in that? And it's really a two-step process. And, and this is super important because I think this is where people get the fat loss. This is where they get mis misled about fat loss products and about fat loss in general. And I'll, I'll touch on why that is uh, after. So the two steps are, are liberation and then oxidation. So basically what happens is first step is you need to signal to your body that we need to release fat from fat cells. So that happens by really being active, but by doing something that makes your body realize that you need energy available for, for, for your body to utilize. And again, that's step one in the process. You're not done just because you've started liberation. Step two is oxidation. That is when you actually burn fat. So you can go out and sprint. And when you sprint, you'll release fight or flight hormones. And those will start the liberation process. But if you go and do sprints and then you eat a Big Mac, the oxidation is not going to happen. Um, <laughs> or it's very short term because you, you've put more free fatty acids in there. You've put more energy back in the system. And it realizes because, like I said, understanding the, the ratio of acetylcoenzyme A, it realizes, oh, we can go right back into storage mode. We're not still running. So we don't need, you know, we don't need right. to keep burning. So basically the moral of the story there is if just because you've broken down fats from stored fat doesn't mean that you've burned fat. Fatty acids that go into the blood can be re-esterified and stored back as body fat. You still need to, you need to be in an energy deficit to do that. So that leads us to the third part of the conversation, which is where do we have points in the system where we can exploit that nutraceutically or pharmaceutically? And there's really, there's, there's four areas that we mechanistically can influence that loss. That's appetite. Obviously, appetite is yeah. going to control your caloric, your energy balance throughout the day. That's absorption of the energy producing nutrients. That's metabolism. So, so burning actual burning of fat or oxidation of fat and that's stimulating fat breakdown. So that's, that's liberation. So those are the four areas that we can influence in, in any of those things. I, I, I probably threw a lot there. So is there anything that, that you want to go back over or you feel like we should probably touch on a little more before I continue? No, I actually think that was perfect because I just wanted to make sure that anyone listening has an understanding of like, yeah, just this, just because you might increase fat release from the cell, from the fat cell, like you're only half of the way there. So like you said, even if that is accomplished, if the demand to utilize the energy is not present, well, we're going to just put it right back in the, back in the storage bin. So, and yeah, like understanding that there's a buildup of acetyl-CoA, if 
we've got excess around, well, we'll just we'll build some fatty acids from it and ship it off to to be stored. So yeah, no, I, I think that was perfect. And I think that would hit hit right on just like some of the 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 main points from the FIS standpoint that, that I think we need to cover. So where I guess I'd like to go next then is all right, what ingredients historically have have we tried or or what has been you know, I kind of like to hit on the on the the greatest hits, so to speak, like the yeah. the big hit, the big heavy hitters that are always uh, tied to to fat loss. And you know, we just we'll talk about like maybe three or so or th- something like that, just to kind of yeah. okay, you know, if someone's really unfamiliar, or what about like this this product or ingredient just like sticks around? What's going on there? And then we can maybe move into some some maybe newer things that people might see on the market. So sure. so historically. What are like the main ingredients that are always linked to fat loss and just in general, how effective are they? So I'd say the first one that probably deserve the mo- deserves the most attention would be a category and it's, it's stimulants. And there's a reason that you see those historically having been prominent on the pharmaceutical side and 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 really most formulations of fat burners in the supplement side still being reliant upon a stimulant component and the, the reason for that is is very clear and and I'll go back to prior points in the conversation when I talked about releasing adrenaline or, or fight fight or flight hormones yep. so whenever you you have a situation that becomes fight or flight where you re- re- release adrenaline, you're activating what's called the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system basically causes a lot of things to happen, but for storage of hormones, it actually activates the breakdown of them. That makes sense because again, you need to, you need to have energy available under the assumption that you might need to run for, for forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yep. that, that initiates a lot of these processes. So it's directly tied to the liberation component. And mechanistically, there's something called hormone-sensitive lipase that starts the liberation process. And that is directly, it's directly influenced or responds directly to the fight-or-flight hormones, predominantly what are called catecholamines, which are really epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So anything that's really going to increase those will usually increase liberation of of free fatty acids. And that's things that we've seen and have data from on the nutraceutical side, like caffeine, yohimbine, back in the day. Unfortunately, you can't use it anymore, but it was really the most effective, which was ephedra, ephedrine. And that they're directly tied to their potency, potency really as a stimulant. So if you think about it, anything that is going to activate the sympathetic nervous system more is usually going to produce more of an increase in free fatty acids. And again, you know, these, these pathways are all directly tied to practical endpoints. Like essentially, if it makes you breathe more, if it makes you be more active, obviously you're going to, you're going to burn more energy. You're going to need more energy available. So that entire class is a big part of fat burning supplements. These days, it's really just what you can still use, which is caffeine and, and yohimbine. So really anything that increases sympathetic nervous system activity is going to typically increase or start the process, initiate the process of of fat burning and liberation. Now, you asked an important question is is what's the potency 
of that. And I think it's, it's important to tie that to some really practical numbers because I think people go in taking these fat burning products thinking like, oh, I'm going to start my diet. I must, I got to take a fat burner. That's going to amplify the effects. I mean, we're talking about over 12 weeks of time at most three to five pounds additional loss, but usually it's around one to two. So it's, it's not, it's not dramatic. It's something, but it's not dramatic. Yeah. And again, it depends on the potency, things like caffeine. They're, they're not quite yeah. as potent back in the day. You were closer to that five pound range when in trials, they were giving a combination of caffeine plus ephedrine, because again, like I, like I mentioned previously, if you combine two stimulants, usually you get an amplified response in the sympathetic nervous system. Therefore, you're going to cause release of more free fatty acids and you're probably going to be stemmed out of your mind. Probably <laughs> <Try to be laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> everybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, the ones that work, yeah, could they solve the, both of the issues here, the, the liberation side and then the oxidative side? It's like, yes, we liberated, but because you're amped up, you're bouncing off the walls, you know, you're... Your non-exercise activity thermogenesis is like really elevated, probably. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna yeah. actually solve the well, oxidative issue. Yeah, and, and 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 that that's a big part. I think you have to remember that you know you're talking about these processes being ongoing throughout the day. And and I'm going to use a, another really popular practice that really just drives home that point even further is like the concept of fasted cardio, which in theory sort of you yeah. know might make sense because yeah, okay. I'm going to liberate more free fatty acids because I'm in a fasted state. So I need to break down storage of, of energy. Great. But if your 24 hour intake exceeds what you've burned, you're pro- you're not going to lose body fat. So you need to be aware of these things where I, I think people think they're tricking the system, but in reality, they're just tricking their own mind. So, so it's important to apply that same concept to taking a stimulant or a fat burner is like, it's more likely to make you more active throughout the day. But if you also consume more and you don't have that deficit still, you're taking the fat burner, you're potentially increasing, you know, cardiovascular stress, but you're not actually increasing fat loss. So you still, you can't avoid the deficit part of the equation because again, yeah, even if it starts liberation, you have to make it go to the point of oxidation and that requires being in an energy deficit. For sure. Yeah. You can't, can't trick the laws of the universe. <laughs> Unfortunately, some of that ends might be smarter than. So what, so like, you know, going back to, you know, these very small, you know, weight losses that might be seen if things are controlled appropriately. So people, you know, they take them for, for fat specifically. So do we know, does the weight in fact come from fat mass or yeah, is it that's a great from that standpoint? From what I'm aware of, again, you know, I'd really have to deep dive a little more into yeah. the trial. But from what I'm aware of, it it was largely body fat mass that it comes from. I do know that new things like what's, you know, the all the rage now is like Ozempic. That's one of the, the criticism mm. of, of, of those trials is that they're just measuring weight loss and not necessarily lean body mass. And, and you could be getting lost in a potentially dangerous long-term situation if if you're losing lean body mass as well because that's one thing yeah. that's dramatically right. going to affect your ability to burn yeah absolutely you want the metabolic tank to be as big as possible or you yep. know engine yep. as big as possible so exactly. i want to go like specifically because the two you've mentioned specifically thus far are caffeine and yohimbine 
you know, so uh, yeah, ca- caffeine, obviously like this, it kind of makes sense if this was a super effective thing, there'd be a lot more lean people walking around because caffeine yeah. intake is so ubiquitous yeah, exactly. in, 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 in society. So like, I think that really should tell people all they need to know about its overall effectiveness. Yeah. But let's say like, as this is my understanding is if someone's like unhabituated and they're, they're really like, maybe they're like really trying to get off the, the last, you know, a few pounds to, to really like get shredded your, your window of, of, of heightened liberation and whatnot is like two weeks. Is that, is that a correct understanding? Yeah, it is. There, there is habituation or there seems to be habituation to that effect. And actually nearly everything I'm going to mention that deals with sympathetic nervous system or let's say manipulation or, or influencing the sympathetic nervous system end of, of fat loss, there seems to be habituation to that. There's one that there, there doesn't seem to be, and that is actually the most interesting one to me, but that deals with a different mechanism. So yeah, the answer to your question is typically, yeah, it's in caffeine naive individuals. So it's in people who are just starting caffeine um, or have only just recently been using it. And if you think about yeah. that practically, usually when you first start caffeine, that's when all of the subjective and sensory differences are most amplified too. And, and I, I, I don't have any data to back this up, but I would imagine, cause it's also part of, of life that you can't tease out is like when you feel better and you feel more energetic and happy and stimmed you want to move more. So I yeah. think, you know, once you lose that, that, that dramatic stimulant effect of caffeine, or it's just not quite at the level it was when you first started using it, uh, obviously you're not going to be as active uh, from it. Cause you know, yeah. when you get people who have been taking caffeine for 20 years, they'll drink a coffee and read the paper. You're not burning a lot of calories. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas like, I remember right. when I was like 15, 16 and I first really had a coffee i was like bouncing off the walls absolutely all right how about you him being where where where's the research at on that like what do we know know there from an effectiveness standpoint so it is more potent of a of a sympathetic nervous system activator because it directly increases uh, epinephrine so and anybody who's used it anecdotally you can feel like 10 milligrams of your him being feel feels stronger than 200 milligrams of caffeine and typically when you've seen it put together in formulations, you're going to get a dramatically different and heightened sense of stimulation when you have, you know, that 200 milligrams with even five to 10 of your hemp And it feels a lot stronger than just 200 milligrams does alone. And, and you see, you see this data in animals. You might not see it as much in people because it's kind of harder to measure, but in, in rodents, what they measure is kind of locomotion and activity. And that's a very classical thing of yeah. being locomotion is increased. And even when I take it as well, it's like, I'm definitely a lot more, uh, a lot more buzzy, a lot more kind of hyperactive. I feel like I need to move. You know what I mean? Like I'm impatient. Like I'm yeah. so yeah, right. It, 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 it's, it's arguably more potent, but there's just not as much data on it as caffeine because caffeine is so much more prominent. As you said, you know, there's things that I, I'm really skeptical of where they talk about spot reduction with yohimbine and taking it topically and transdermally to remove, you know, stuff around the love handles and stuff, because apparently there's more adrenergic receptors and that's, that's what Yohimbian works upon. But I'm hmm. super skeptical of that stuff. Even if in theory, you know, a lot of that is true. I, I think, I think it's misleading to people because I think it makes people yeah. 
want to rub you heavy and all over their midsection, thinking that they're going to get their thick back that way. And I think, I think you need, again, like we started the whole conversation, I think you really need to focus most of your attention and time on the 90 plus percent range yeah. and let this be sort of the, the icing on the cake. Yeah, absolutely. So the last, I guess, I do want to ask specifically about the greens, green tea, green coffee. Yep. Because those are two that just have stuck around. And yep. again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you're a rodent, these things are like amazing. There is like EGCG or orogenic acid, which is would be the, the green coffee active ingredient. But then as far as I know in humans, it's just like meh or, or just like no effect. Yeah. There's hurdles to get over and, and there's, that's, there's reasons why you can't automatically take an animal study and assume that that magic is going to happen in a person. Cause there's other ingredients as well that, that, you know, one of the things is for scolin that is, it, it directly activates the process of, of, of breaking down fat because it increases camp. And when you increase camp in the cell, you, yeah. you activate hormone sensitive lipase, which like I said, starts the liberation yeah. process. In cells, in isolated cells, or it's called in vitro, um, that's forskolin is used to actually increase camp, but it's just not that clear cut and simple when you give it to people or in vivo. And so, th so there's challenges. That stuff is exciting, but a lot of times it's sort of underwhelming where there's just not that much data. And that's one of those ingredients where there's just not that much data for it. It seems like, you know, in theory, it, it should be great, but nothing's been that impressive where where they've they've actually given it to humans and, and looked at the outcomes. But to get to, to what you asked about, that was that was really the next big one of of the big three, as I'd call them, for for fat loss, which is EGCG. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing. I mean the reason we started with stimulants is is I think well I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually totally <laughs> blow out my 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 whole process here by the last one being the most potent. But I would say you know, the stimulants are, when you're talking about things that influence the sympathetic nervous system, we've gone yeah. in kind of order of potency. So stimulants first, and then secondary would be something like EGCG. And the reason for that is that, and this is actually interesting too, is that we don't even have a clear cut mechanism on why EGCG seems to work. There's, there's an elucidated one that in theory seems to work. And that, that mechanism is the inhibition of something called COMT. COMT is just an enzyme that breaks down catecholamines. So in theory, the reason okay. EGCG seems to work is because it prolongs the effect of catecholamines in activation of hormone-sensitive lipase. So basically, if you provided caffeine with EGCG, in theory, you would cause liberation over the longer term of fatty acids. But there's... I, I have... I think that needs to be taken with a grain of salt because just like you said, why don't we see these same effects from uh, animal studies that to humans with these dramatic effects on, on body fat loss and stuff is there's issues with bioavailability of EGCG. It's very lipophilic. Mm. Usually ingredients mm. like that, you have trouble getting high absorption of other common things like that are like turmeric or berberine. Yep. Usually they're, they don't have high bioavailability. Resveratrol is another one that you know, seems to be a miracle compound in cells. Whereas when you orally ingest them, you're just not getting that high a yield of them to the cells of your body, which you need to do in order for stuff to work. 
So, you know, one potential area that you need to compare if you are looking at these animal studies is like, did they give it to them as a gavage where they, they forced it kind of into a circulation or as some type of injection or something like that? Because that's going to be dramatically different versus orally taking it and having it to go through what's called first pass, which is through the digestive tract before it goes out into the body. So EGCG, it seems to be in almost like an, an, an addendum ingredient to, to improve liberation, the liberation step, not necessarily the oxidation step of fat loss. But again, you know, the, the effects are, are not dramatic. We're talking again, you know, in 12, 16 weeks, maybe one to two pounds or of fat loss. Now you can make a, a very good argument to say that it's not a bad thing to add, but because there are general health properties of catechins as well, but you know, and, and antioxidant properties of green tea and all those happy things, but you need to take a high dose. Like one of the things that we didn't touch on, even with caffeine is like, you know, upper limit per day is 400 milligrams. That would definitely be more than enough to, to start these processes for a caffeine naive individual. For EGCG, it really, it's, it's most potent in human studies at four to 500 milligrams a day. That's a lot of EGCG. Um, hmm. That's, very expensive. Like whenever I've even looked at putting EGCG in products, it's like cost yeah. prohibitively expensive. Um, wow. And you need to also consider that a lot of supplemental EGCG is 50% at best. So, you know, a gram is a, is a large quantity to have to be, be taking in. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, th- and, and those are really the two biggest we have in terms of yeah. having enough data to support them doing something seemingly mechanistically. But the last one is, to me, the, the most interesting, and it controls the biggest part of the process, in my opinion, which is appetite. So we could either take a break there and, and talk a little more on that, or we can get right into the last one. No, I, th- I think let's keep, keep going. So the last one, like I said, you know, we have these four points that, are, that are, we can influence mechanistically. Appetite, absorption, breakdown, and then burning or metabolism. So the only two we could really supplementally influence are the breakdown or the liberation and then the appetite component because metabolism requires things like thyroid medications or DNP, which are, they're not supplements. Yeah. And then absorption, you know, we do have things like Orlistat, which blocks fat absorption, but that's pharmaceutical as well. So mm-hmm. to get to the appetite component, again, when we talked about what is the 90%, what is the biggest part of the pie here that's most important is energy balance. When you're talking about losing fat long-term, not just starting the process, but taking it all the way through doing both steps. And the most ing- interesting ingredient there is is actually 5-HTP. It's not a stimulant. It, it influences serotonin. And mechanistically, why that works is carbohydrates alter what's called the plasma tryptophan ratio. Tryptophan is actually a, a precursor to serotonin. So when you take a, a, a large dose of carbohydrates, it can improve satiety or, or satisfaction from, from carbohydrates. You can actually send that signal without needing the calories of the carbohydrates by providing what is a precursor to serotonin, which is 5-HTP. And there's very interesting human data that seem to have been looked over, surprisingly to me, by a lot of companies. In, in that being really what I would consider both the most research-based thing to improve fat loss 
and the one that makes sense most mechanistically. And it will always be a supplement because you're looking at much larger weight loss, you know, like five to 10 kilos more over that same time frame. Almost all of the reduction in calories comes from a reduction in carbohydrate intake, which I think is very, very interesting. It's very easily accessible. There's no stimulant, so there's no cardiovascular stressors. Usually it makes people feel a little more uplifted and just in general satisfied. There is one drawback, however, to it. And the one thing that you see in any trials or even anecdotally with people who use 5-HTP is you have the issue of nausea from it, a potential overproduction of serotonin. And people need to be really careful if they're taking SSRIs because you can risk something called serotonin syndrome, which will make you yep. feel very sick and can actually be potentially life-threatening. So again, the, the magic range of all these things dosage-wise is four to 500 milligrams. Uh, that's per day. What, what I've found is if people do want to use 5-HTP, if you just use it at a smaller dose before meals, like 100, 150 milligrams, that can help you avoid that, that nausea. Again, these effects are dose dependent. Right. And you could just spread that out between before each meal. And of everything we have, that is actually the most potent, quote, fat burner, yeah. although it's not directly a fat burner. Yeah, right. it, it doesn't yeah. actually impact the liberation or the oxidation, which is what people are usually going for with the fat. Like directly, quote, indirectly yeah. it does, but yeah, yeah, not directly. It's affecting the calorie balance. It's yep. affecting the actual master regulator. So that's that is 5-HTP also like classically, is that it? more like a sleep supplement. Is that why? So that's, like that's what's funny. And that's what I found really interesting because in, in the supplement space, you know, some of the past formulations I've made have just been repurposing of ingredients based upon, you know, the, the literature where yeah. they're introduced for one thing and they actually don't have that much evidence for that thing, but they have more evidence for something else. So classically 5-HTP was used as a sleep aid, which Interestingly enough, it doesn't seem to improve sleep quality. I think it just makes people feel more relaxed and yeah. sort of satisfied. So that helps them feel like it's working. But the data on 5-HTP and serotonin for sleep is actually not very good. And even when you look at SSRIs, you, you find issues with, with sleep and especially REM sleep. So serotonin and sleep have an interesting interplay. And part of the reason for that is that you break down serotonin to make melatonin. And I think if you have artificially high serotonin prior to sleep, I think you're actually potentially working against yourself before you go to sleep, quality sleep. Interesting. That's very interesting. So just very briefly, like what, what are a couple that are maybe newer that people might start seeing on labels or that might be coming down the, down, down the road? And you don't have to get into the mechanism or anything like that or, or, or the, a research dive. Just kind of, you know, maybe briefly mention a, a few of them. And then I guess what we understand about them from an efficacy standpoint at this time. Yeah, I think anything that's newer or novel or being promoted as something, like I said, probably the most interesting to me is like forescolin, but that's just purely theoretical. All these things just don't have enough data for us to really say, mm. you know, stuff in the past like chromium which just doesn't have any, any data or, or enough literature support. CLA was popular for a while, which is sort of sparse data. There's stuff on fatty acids like MCTs, not really that strong of data. You know, like you mentioned before, green coffee beans. I, I remember hoodie was, uh, was an interesting thing before. I think there's like a kidney bean extract that's supposed to 
reduce carbohydrate absorption and stuff, but that stuff just doesn't have enough data and it's more marketing than it is anything else for sure at the moment. So uh, yeah. a lot of hype. And I read a great line that I don't remember. I'm probably going to butcher it from one of the papers is that basically a lot of fat burning products are, are industry driven. They're not driven by the actual evidence. And it's driven by demand is, is there's so much demand for these products. That's why it's a popular category because people want okay. to be able to take a pill. I mean, look yeah. at the popularity of Ozeptic. Ozeptic, there's, yeah. it's not a supplement, but you know, they're having trouble providing it to patients because they're short of this. Yeah. So when you say industry driven, meaning like they're just, they're basically just putting out a product and putting ingredients in it because of people ask, that's what people want. Like, because there's um, a demand and they know they can make the sales. Yep. Yep. Interesting. So, I mean, think about it. Think, think of the average rationale for, I think, someone who really wants to lose fat, but doesn't, wants to, wants to try every method yeah. of least effort first. They'll say, well, <laughs> I'll spend 30 bucks. And if it works, awesome. If it doesn't, okay, I just won't buy it again. I'm just out 30 bucks. Yeah. Yep. But Very interesting. You're going to be out yeah. 30 bucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And you could, you could yeah. actually save more money by just consuming less calories. Don't buy as much food. You'll get your fat loss. Yeah, and there you go. Too. Oh, man, double, double win. <laughs> actually, something I did want to touch on because, you know, a big part of this conversation is nutritionally oriented. And one of the best things for, for fat burning when we're talking about appetite control as well is fiber. And it's just so underappreciated mm. because it's not sexy. But the reality right. is like, if you want to regulate and control appetite, that's a huge one. I mean, you could, you know, someone who, who wanted to just do this practically without doing, um, without going down the supplement avenue yet is like something as simple as having a, you know, a glass of water, like 12 to 16 ounces of water and some uh, fibrous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, anything like that, that you like before a meal. You will feel satisfied much faster once you have that meal. If you had that fiber and the fluid, because by one of the one of the 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 uh, mechanisms of fiber is it swells, it it holds water. Yeah. One of the things that your stomach responds to is mechanical stretch. Yeah. So would would the same effect extend to like a? I'm trying to think what the, like like a Benafiber, a Metamucil, yeah, like these, every, like supplemental fibers. When we used, we did in the past with Denova, we had, we had, a, it was sold under the category of fat burner, but it wasn't really, it wasn't a fat burner. It was a, yeah. let's call it a body composition product. And uh, we used glucomannan. And the reason for yep. that is glucomannan actually has, it swells more than any other fiber. So it takes on a lot of water and it, you get a lot more swelling with it. It's cheap. It's affordable. It's tasteless. I remember when I was in bodybuilding prep, I would make glucomannan pancakes. They tasted great. They actually, because of that swelling property, they fluffed yeah. up a lot and they were super low calories and almost all fiber and, and very, very filling. That's awesome. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say like, they probably actually had a really nice texture yeah, to them. Great. As long as like I eat the Walden yeah. Farm calorie-free syrup and it, it, it really filled that craving that I had for huge pancakes when I couldn't eat huge pancakes. And it's funny, they cook up just like them and the flour is just, it just looks no, like normal wheat flour and it's affordable. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Ben, thanks so much for your time today. You know, if people want to follow you, continue to learn from you, where can they find you? And then, yeah, just go ahead and just talk a little bit about other things you've got going on, like what, what you're involved in and, and I guess 
you know, if people want to re- support you or yeah, just get involved with the things you got, you're doing, just uh, kind of talk about that. Sure. So probably my best place is Instagram. I'm not incredibly active on social media, but I'm there. People can get in touch with me there. It's just at Ben Esgro. I always mention this one. It's not as active as I'd like it to be because it's more of a passion project. I have a page called Subside where I do delve into, you know, kind of mechanistic things, educational things about supplements. I always say I want to get back to it, but just, you know, it's kind of the last thing on the plate because like I said, it's a passion project, but it's there and there's good information there if anybody wants to kind of delve in to what have been hot topics in the supplement realm, like terkestrone and caffeine salts and stuff like that. Elemental is my current brand, which I, I, I formulate for, and we are trying to kind of get a, a revitalization of it because we've been out of stock of kind of our most popular product, especially Utopia. That's going to be in stock probably next week. So probably by the time this comes out, that'll be back in stock. I know a lot of people yep. have been waiting for that. It's actually a flavor that we've never done before, green apple. So definitely check that out. That's been really a mainstay for us since like 2014. Anybody who's a new listener, uh, probably one of the first products you'd want to try in our line. Um, and yeah, I think the, the, the last thing is, well, also coaching. I do powerlifting coaching and nutrition coaching. And then if anybody's interested in formulation consulting or anything like that, you know, they could reach me through either of those pages and, and, and I'd be happy to, to lend my advice or my opinion or expertise or anything like that. So yeah, so that's everything. awesome. Yep. And of course, like I'll, have links to websites in the, in the show notes and, and, and you can check those out. And uh, also I'll put Ben's social media in there. And uh, yeah, actually Ben, that's how you, you and I kind of met as I took yep. advantage of your consulting services when I was putting together a, a presentation on how to evaluate supplement quality. So yeah, definitely. I mean, it's clear that you're a wealth of information. It's clear that you've got a, a really nice skill set. So I'm just really appreciative of your time, man. And uh, thank you for coming on. Likewise. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.